Hey everyone, Dan with Concessions here. I am pretty excited to share this earlier episode we recorded about a film that I have been evangelizing for pretty much since the day I saw it by the name of Miami Connection. Uh, this one I chose to cover with Jared because first of all, he hadn't seen it. And second of all, it's a film that I really love that I simultaneously could understand if someone just isn't on its wavelength for the exact same reasons I love it, which I thought would make for pretty good potential concessions fodder, uh, which if you have seen the film, you'll know exactly what I mean. If you haven't seen the film, you are now officially warned that we will be spoiling plot points heavily throughout the conversation. So uh, beware. Um, it's available on Mubi, Fubo TV, Amazon, and YouTube as of date of recording if you want to check it out before diving into the episode. Um, also, for next week's episode, I wanted to give a little preview so that you can uh, check out the film in the interim uh, by the name of Asteroid City. That's uh, Wes Anderson's newest film that came out over the summer. It's about to land on Peacock, and you can also pick it up on DVD and Blu-ray if you want to check it out before we talk about it next week. Um, as always, thank you so much for sticking with us thus far, and if you've been enjoying what we do, we'd uh, deeply appreciate a nice little follow, rate, review on your preferred podcasting service of choice. Uh, also, you can find me on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Dan Concedes, as well as you can find Jared on threads at Jared Concessions. Uh, we'd love to say hi, hear your thoughts on any of the chats that we've had in the past or this current one. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the episode. about ninjas cocaine rock bands and the power of love and friendship for eternity and loyalty <laughs> and honesty <laughs> we'll stick together through thick or thin which all, really all great art isn't about that in the end it is you know we're gonna be talking about um a movie that i love uh miami connection um but first dan what are you drinking I'm drinking, going a little, uh, <clears throat> a little bit of curveball today. We're doing a a California hard cider from Coronado Brewing Co. Nice and dry. Is it? Well, a little misleading because it is in fact a liquid. Um, so it is quite wet in its nature. The can is also. Does yeah, when it comes wet. to alcohol or ciders, does dry just mean that it's like unsweet compared I, yeah, to other? Yeah, that's pretty much how yeah. I determine it. Yeah, I'm drinking a quart of Guinness. A quart, you say? Leftover yeah. from St. Patrick's Day? Kind of, yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, uh, Guinness is my all-time favorite beer. And mm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you have been to the source, right? Yes, I have. I've suckled straight at the teat at St. Andrew's Gate. My goodness gracious. Um, and uh, anyway, I think this is my all-time favorite beer. It, uh, it, you know, it's the like the least bitter of all the beers <laughs> like that are mass-produced. Uh, kind of just tastes like coffee or a little bit chocolatey. Um, 
And oh, uh, my apologies to the Irish in the room. It's St. James Gate. I don't know where I got Andrews. Oh boy, good thing it's not St. Patty's Day anymore. Um, well, anyway, so I was at my local grocery store, and uh, I guess they overstocked on this stuff because they still had a whole St. Patty's Day, um, a whole St. Patty's Day display a couple days after. And so this, uh, there was an eight pack of the pints that's usually like twenty five bucks, and it was fifteen bucks. Ooh, yeah, like yeah. Less than two bucks a pint. Um, so this is two pints that have been poured into a uh, cleaned out uh, jar that used to house Kirkland Signature Strawberry Preserves. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a quart of strawberry preserves. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a liter of Guinness right there, as it should come in. Um, yeah, or, yeah. Oh, one quick side Guinness story, and then we can get into the goods. Is uh, I used similar to that uh, with like overstock. I used to um, one of my first jobs after college was working at a uh, English pub, and uh, ironically, the UK pub's biggest day was St. Patrick's Day, which for those who uh, understand the the regional politics of the area would understand why that's deeply inappropriate. But Americans do not care. Um, but we would, yeah, the, it was like if St. Patrick's Day was Tuesday, we get our beer order in on, uh, or if St. Patrick's Saturday, we get our beer order on Tuesday. And um, I specifically um, was hired so that I, because they only had women at the time, and they needed someone to haul all those kegs of Guinness that were going to get ordered for yeah. that, uh, that week. And, well, and Bud Light, because that's green beer. Bud, it's literally just Bud Light and a drop of green. Um, but... I, I remember our the beer fridge was it was you could barely even get through it. It was just stacks and stacks and stacks of Guinness, uh, which of course we didn't go through at all. So then after St. Patrick's Day, we're giving out Guinness like it's water. Yeah. Yep. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so my what I usually think of when I think of the sort of um, dissonance uh, when it comes to kind of American interpretations of. Uh, you know, UK politics from centuries past in regards to bars and beer uh, is that one of my favorite things to order at like either a deeply Irish or a deeply English bar is uh, what you call a bumblebee, which hmm. is a uh, Boddington's ale with a Guinness float. So uh, uh, yeah, because uh, yeah, the, the Boddington's is a yellow can. The Guinness is a black can together. They're a bumblebee. Boddington's also has a bee on it. Yeah, which which does kind of, um, you know, it, it sort of skews the the name a little bit more towards the Boddingtons, which is appropriate because it is, it's I think it's two parts Boddington, the one parts Guinness, mm. and it is so fucking good. And I love Boddington so much. They had that. Uh, it's like my taste in beer is actually kind of skewed European because I was twenty two at the time, and that was like the first time I was really exposed to like beer other than natural light. Oh yeah. That'll do it. I kind of have a similar, I think, with Guinness and Boddington's, which, you know, they actually have a pretty strikingly similar flavor profile. Um, considering how different they look on the surface, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Boddington's is creamier than it would seem. Uh, but, yeah, I think Boddington's and Guinness were kind of my two first, you know, non, like, natural light or, <laughs> like, bush light beers. Uh, and they Ronnie? both had a very, yeah, very special place in my heart. Uh, you know, I did not have a Rainier until I was already a man um, <laughs> when I moved to Seattle. Some good old vitamin R. The first time someone yeah. made that joke to me, I it was comedy gold. I was like, this is the best joke I've heard in a long time. Yeah, lots of vitamin D jokes happen in Seattle. 
<laughs> for some dicks. <laughs> oh, man, see, this, this the Seattle references can just keep rolling <laughs> off the dicks. Um, so we're going to be talking about the motherfucking Miami connection, mm. or excuse me, just motherfucking Miami the connection. Polar opposite no, corner of Seattle. Or there's no, Seattle. <laughs> there's yeah, exactly. There's no the. It's just Miami connection. Um, this movie. Okay, usually I just kind of breeze through the credits, but I'm I need to give the credits of this film like some proper room to breathe. So this movie was directed by Wu Sang Park and YK Kim. It was written by Joseph Diamond and YK Kim. Joseph Diamond also uh, plays the role of Jack in the movie. Uh, YK Kim also stars in the movie as Mark. It has music by Angelo Gennati, who also uh, stars as Tom. And uh, everyone else in this movie either held a camera, edited the thing, you know, served the food. Uh, the director that I mentioned a, a moment ago, Wu Sang Park, he plays Mark's uncle in the movie who owns a pizza place where the gang hangs out. And, uh, you know, he beats the crap out of some 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 toughs that are giving him a hard time. Uh, who I don't think they're the same toughs that give the other characters a hard time. I think those are like... No, these just, are one-off toughs. Those are yeah. just one-off toughs. Um, but this movie is so just homegrown um from from this community in central florida around this community college that the real life creators were were going to for like most of them um they were all you know members of of the taekwondo club that you know spun off this movie and a successful chain of of taekwondo gyms um and this movie is so just uh made by a community for a community um by you know a very very ambitious young man uh named yk kim um before we kind of start to dive in um we should talk about what our, our previous relationship to this movie was for me it was nothing at all i had never heard of this movie until you recommended that we watch it and uh, i watched it for the first time five days ago and i've seen it three times <laughs> during that time period and uh this is one of my favorite movies that i've seen in a while um, so mine isn't much further back than yours. Um, I have the, uh, the subscription service movie movie. Great, uh, subscription service. Please sponsor us. Um, it, it popped up. There was like a, a good bit of fanfare and like the way they marketed it was like, Oh, it's a big deal. They got their hands on this. And this is something really special. And, um, just from the trailer, if, if you want to pause for a second, check out the trailer. It's, it's so awash in just. 80s cheese to the like nth degree so uh, i think i don't know whenever it came out i would say it probably came out sometime over the summer or the spring of uh 2023 23 is that how years work no 2022 sorry uh spring of 2023 is just starting um and i watched it just kind of expecting i think honestly i was like a, a little hungover i was it was the middle of the afternoon i'm like i need something dumb um, and I threw it on <laughs> and I didn't realize that I was in for way more of a pleasant experience than I uh, anticipated. Like I was genuinely expecting like, okay, like fast and furious kind of entertainment. It's like, it's gonna be dumb. It's gonna be schlocky. Uh, but I'm gonna come out with the edge of my hangover taken off. Cool. Um, instead, <laughs> I learned to believe in the power of friendship and rock and roll. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of, I went into it having just read the log line, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I'll go into synopsis in just a moment here, but um, went into it just being like, okay, this is going to be like a so bad it's good martial arts movie, uh, like a bad version of Enter the Dragon, and that's it. And like, it's going to be, it's going to have terrible acting and it's going to have, you know, nothing of value other than to be laughed at. And then Which, my to be God, clear, it does have terrible acting. No, no, it has the worst acting, <laughs> but God, I like, I love this movie. Like at a certain point, I realized that I had kind of stopped laughing at it. And I, it, I was just in awe of just how much I actually really loved the characters and the point of view of the people who made it and uh it's just it's so deeply wholesome and uh, even though it's very gory very brutal it it has this dichotomy that we're going to jump into a lot later on where it's so full of hope and love and just compassion and community you know these people poured everything that they had into making it and at a certain point i was like wow i mean like yeah this is like completely inept but <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter at all. This movie's just so good. So uh, just a quick synopsis. So there's good guys in this movie. They're in a rock band called Dragon Sound, almost like a hair metal band, almost like a synth pop kind of new wave hair metal type of thing. Very 80s. Uh, but they are also roommates who their father figure, Mark, played by uh, YK Kim, the the you know kind of figurehead around the entire movie he teaches them taekwondo he plays rhythm guitar in the band and there's they're good guys and they're the best of friends on the other side there is a gang from miami who's kind of rolling into town and taking over the cocaine trade because this is florida in the 80s and cocaine is the water of life um and uh this gang they happen to be ninjas and they also happen to be bikers they join forces with some kind of lower level gym rat tough guys who uh, have a personal vendetta against Dragon Sound because their leader's sister is dating the bassist of Dragon Sound. And uh, they join forces with a band who doesn't like Dragon Sound because they took their jobs. <laughs> and uh, then they fight. Uh, but it's so much more than that. There's so many plot I want to say twists, just developments that don't belong in this movie, but they have to be in it. And uh, I, yeah, it's I, it's shocking that this movie is under ninety minutes. Uh, yeah, it, and it's shocking that this movie is under ninety minutes because this is a movie that uh, takes its time with things. Like there, something like I think six full-length songs that are played in its entirety like a musical like there's it just goes into music dragon sound music videos like six different times <laughs> and then there's also and, like a like a three to four minute like extended scene of them like just practicing 1v1 taekwondo lessons yeah and then various <laughs> inserts of them just like breaking through a pile of bricks or uh you know, just demonstrating martial arts. Showing off their skills, dude. But the movie, just even though it, it takes these dramatic asides, it just flies by. Watching it three times this week was not even kind of approaching a chore. Yeah, I mean, first off, and that was what got me into it first, is 
this movie has to be 90 minutes or less. Um, it has to, it's got to come quick, come hard, throw everything at you and then get on out. Uh, and it certainly does that. Um, and I think what's funny is as you were talking about that, you know what movie I suddenly thought of that uh, could have close to the same vibe, but like updated to its own time is Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, this movie, this movie is like, if someone tried to simultaneously make Napoleon Dynamite and Everything Everywhere All at Once in 1987 with no budget and no skills. Yeah, because even Napoleon Dynamite has some, like, <clears throat> there's some competency going on. It's it's rough around the edges, but you can tell the people, at least on paper, know what they're doing. Where um, And that's, that's half the story of this film, is the production <laughs> of this film. It is... It's it's just the the little film that could, you know. Yeah, and I want to. We're probably gonna compare it to the room quite a bit, and not just because it's bad, but because it has like a similar kind of heart to it. I I, I want to get out in front of this because the room looks like a porno. Like it looks like it was shot on, uh, you know, a handy cam from the '90s, uh, and uh, it, it's got this like sort of weird like gloss of a porno where it doesn't quite look like a movie it kind of looks like a soap opera mm -hmm. um miami connection looks like a movie like it's filmed very cinematically it's not filmed like a soap opera the way that a lot of bad movies are it's just the little things where it's like ooh, that was a weird edit or like it's i yeah, can't it's, see anything in this scene like it looks like a movie made by someone who has never studied film but just has watched a lot of movies and know what they look like yeah uh the person who shot it is a fairly prolific cinematographer of b movies at this point yk kim actually uh, was not a movie-going person. The star, director, producer, writer, fight choreographer, stuntman of this movie, YK Kim. Uh, someone asked him kind of what kind of movies he was into that were like his, you know, his points of reference for this. And he's like, you know, I don't didn't really like go to the movies. I practiced Taekwondo and like <laughs> spent time with my friends. Like we weren't really doing a lot of sitting down in the 80s. We were sparring and we were like teaching each other. And... Uh, you can tell watching this movie <laughs> that he spent a lot more time teaching Taekwondo than he did watching movies. Which now I'm thinking of another Napoleon Dynamite connection of Rex Kwondo. I wonder, no, the timeline doesn't st stack up. They couldn't have known about Miami Connection then because it hadn't resurfaced. I mean, maybe they were one of the, the few very lucky people that happened to grow up in Central Florida in 1987 and caught this. But the, yeah, guy, from, the guy from Rex Kwondo would belong in Miami Connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's actually get that out of the way, kind of more of the background. So mm. originally, this movie had a very, very limited release. Like it was only released in a handful of theaters in their backyard of Central Florida. Like it was reviewed in like the major Orlando newspapers, and that's pretty much it. Uh, and anyone who saw it thought it was terrible. It didn't even come close to like you know recouping any of its losses, and it just kind of went away. And and like it, Kim. Uh, once the dust had settled and he had recovered financially from it a bit, he continued to be clear. This bankrupted him. Yeah. Yeah. He had no idea how to make a movie. He had no idea how fast he was going to be, be spending money making this movie. And uh, he barely was able to make it after many reshoots over like a couple of years. Yeah. It, no, no one saw it. And the people that did hated it. And he went back to his life of teaching Taekwondo, becoming a grandmaster, opening up various uh, various studios. 
Um, and he was, you know, success, he was a successful kind of Central Florida Taekwondo Grandmaster in his own right. And then like 2010, 2011, the, I guess, like kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it in the, in the movie world, but I, like in the music world, it'd be like an A&R person for Alamo Drafthouse. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he was, he was like a prominent film collector of like actual um, reels. And he bought a copy of about an actual film reel of the Miami connect of, excuse me, Miami connection on eBay for, I think $40 and showed it to all of his film friends. They fell in love with it immediately. They showed it to more audiences at the Alamo draft house who in turn completely fell in love with it. He's trying to, he's calling YK Kim on the phone, trying to tell him, Hey, like, let me distribute your movie. Let me put it in Alamo draft houses. Let me put it in other, cinemas all over the country let me put it out on blu-ray and like kim thought it was a joke he like wouldn't take his calls he would delete his voicemail saying like this person is making fun of me this person hasn't really seen my movie and then uh finally he was able to get like kim to take him seriously and they struck up a deal after you know some back and forth i hope like got his his money's worth and uh they put the movie out on blu-ray and gave it a you know limited theatrical release nationwide they had big big midnight screenings at the Alamo draft house and people have loved it ever since. And it's been a, a cult classic now, probably not on the same level as something like the room, but kind of approaching it in terms of popularity. Yeah. I'm almost wondering, um, cause you had sent me that, uh, there's a Vox documentary essentially about the same story. If you guys want to check it out, we'll put it in the show notes if this ever gets released or we ever actually have a show. I'm wondering if, uh, the or Miami Connection will get a disaster artist treatment because the story of the movie is just as interesting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it would take someone who worked on the movie to write a good book about it, I guess. Maybe. I would absolutely adore like a behind the scenes kind of YK Kim biopic making of Miami Connection. Like that would be wonderful. It would be a good uh, biopic, yeah. <laughs> a good biopic. um but that's yeah that's the that's the broad strokes of the story behind the production its disappearance its resurgence and why now today people who uh spend too much time thinking about movies really really love this movie it also serves as and this is my favorite thing about movies like this in the room is it's a movie you share to your friends who have never heard of it and then you hear them like come back like an hour or two hours later it's like wow that is the best thing I have been shown. Thank you for exposing this to me. Yeah, and that's like that's like part of the joy of cult hits. Oh yeah, is yep. you discover it and then you spread it like a virus. I mean, yeah, I, I've that's what this movie has done to me. Like you did that, you did that to me. I love this movie. I've been obsessed with it all week. I've been telling anyone I know who <laughs> I would possibly have an interest in it how good it is. I've been like my my daughter has been singing the song friends from it because <laughs> the music in this movie is like very kid friendly oh absolutely um, like, like they literally say in the album, movie i believe yeah it. they say in the movie like the rival band is like this is kid music it's music for little kids and then the club owner is like yeah well you make old people music you <laughs> jackass and then the guy's like then he like basically like kills a couple of the guy's friends with his bare hands and then the other guy's like like, don't you give me a hard time.
in a way, this film does have like a childlike naivete to it. I mean, it's definitely got adult sensibilities because we're chopping heads off and people are cursing. You get to see some some good biker boobs from time to time. Like this is like don't get don't get it twisted. This is a rated R film. Maybe think twice before showing it to your children. Uh, but it absolutely has this like yeah, just like childlike purity. And not I'm not saying that in like a no pun intended, infantilizing way. It's just, it's so, it so flies in the face of the irony that you'll see, uh, the cynicism and irony that you're going to see that's coming up in the 90s yeah. and after that. Yeah, well, Y.K. Kim is a, he is a teacher. Like, it has a, it has like a childlike sensibility or a, um, you know, a wholesome quality to it because his, entire point of making the movie is he wanted to teach people about Taekwondo on a more massive scale. And he wanted to teach people about loving music and loving their friends. And that's, I mean, Waika Kim is one of those people like, you know, that the meme where it shows like Bob Ross and Steve Irwin and Mr. Rogers, et cetera, et cetera. And it says, you know, some men just want to watch the world learn. <laughs> YK Kim is one of those guys who just, you know, didn't quite get the notoriety of someone like a Steve Irwin or a Mr. Rogers. Yeah, it's because YK Kim never got a cool Taekwondo TV show. That's what he needed. Oh, yeah. It's not too late. No, it's absolutely not too late. That, he's he's still a fairly that. young man. He's like in his 50s right now, I think. Yeah, 60s. he's not trying to start that career. Yeah. I mean, he's not. Yeah, even just from that doc, which was, I mean, it was shot within the last decade. I mean, YK Kim still seemed pretty spry. He's still on Twitter. He's still teaching Taekwondo. He's on Twitter. I love that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh yeah yeah you gotta follow him we gotta tweet at him when we uh, we gotta get him on the show oh my god I would I I don't know I would get pretty like mealy mouth little uh, (laughs) slack jawed in his presence even if it was remote I I don't know I'm like I'm already getting a little like tingly just thinking about it like if that really happened I don't know I'd be a little fangirl about it. I would be, yeah, I had never heard of him one week ago, but uh, (laughs) now I'm his biggest fan. (laughs) Um, Okay, we've, I think we've, uh, we've clearly uh, laid out like the basics of the plot, the basics of the story behind the film, which is just as interesting. And I I think it's integral to understanding the film is to understand YK Kim. I think at least we got the broad strokes. We'll probably bring up more as we move into uh, other subjects. Um, the one, yeah, the, the, the next one I want to bring up is the idea of genre films, filmmaking. Um, what do audience expect when it comes to uh, how self-aware films are, um, especially in stuff that gets labeled as like B tier or low budget or, or goofy. Um, so like the first question I have is, so it's 1987. We're kind of in the very uh, the the blockbuster is you know the, the the main mode of production right now. If if you're gonna make a big sweet action movie, you're you're making a blockbuster movie a la like Terminator or yeah, it's got that big sci-fi element. So, I mean, if you're making a kung fu movie, you got uh, Jackie Chan that's out there making stuff. The Karate Kid, it, uh, those movies are coming out. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely say like, martial arts and karate is. Uh, People are into it in the States right now. Um, but this movie doesn't, it, with its veneer of being, I would say, more referential to other things than YK Kim would want to admit, um, it never once, like, winks and nods at the screens, like, hey, isn't this all a little silly? Like, you know, you're just here for a good time. We're just giving you, like, these silly thrills. 
Um, so how do you think this fits into the greater uh, like cinematic culture of the late 80s? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to steal your thunder like for later, but I mean, it fits right in, like ca- kind of capitalizing on fairly new uh, like American obsession with with like Eastern culture and martial arts. And the 80s is definitely like when like American consumption of like things that were, you know, of Asian origin, like started to really become mainstream, you know, martial arts is probably the thing that most people would have associated with it as far as cinematic language. And yeah, and the martial arts film, particularly. Yeah, exactly. So no, it's just right in there. Like, I think that, you know, just like a lot of a lot of his contemporaries, like, you know, Jackie Chan is the one that comes to mind the most. He's just, you know, he's a talented martial artist maybe a slight interest in film. Like he was approached by the director, Wu Sang Park, who had seen him on a TV show just discussing Taekwondo. And he convinced him to co-direct a movie with him based on his love of martial arts. So like, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think there was an attempt to just capitalize on momentum that had already been started by Jackie Chan, that who had kind of picked it up from Bruce Lee after his death and uh, just make a, make a fun movie that would educate people yeah because i i think i would push back a little bit on it i don't think it was a conscious attempt of this is hot right now let's make a film about it to cash in because <clears throat> like what you're saying was like how the idea of this film came up first it wasn't yk kim's idea originally it was uh, the other director whose name just fell out of my yeah head. um but it was born out of more of a not a top-down decision where it's like oh this thing out there is popular let's add to it it was more of a bottom-up of like this community cares so much about this one thing. Let's ex- let's express ourselves as a community in this way, and this is the 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 most populous mode of doing it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're you're right on the head. I kind I kind of want to talk about this more in like a I guess a, a, a broader sense because the thing that like jumps out to me most about kind of this movie's place in time is that the late 80s is also like the very end of just like total sincerity in cinema. Uh, Mm. What I mean by Mm. that is like soon after the blockbuster age became the age of blockbuster sequels, like he still had some of that. Like there's, you know, multiple Indiana Jones movies, multiple Star Wars movies, uh, multiple Jaws before this. But man, in the 90s, it really like, started to become the thing where it's like, if this isn't like a pre-existing property, you're probably not going to get bankrolled. People started kind of developing this shared language of like, you know, I know what a Terminator movie is. I know what a Star Wars movie is. Like, I know what, uh, you know, any number of slasher number four five, six, seven is like, there's kind of this shared language where like people didn't just want to watch movies. They wanted to kind of flex their knowledge about what to expect from them. And it became there became it became like this whole this thing that still exists now that like these movies have to not just appeal to like a person who wants to watch a story they have to appeal to the people that want to like live to it fandoms. and, and to, to fandoms that want to like comment on it and be part of it and so movies are no longer just made by the artists for the artists to express themselves they're made with a uh, you know, a, a culturally literate audience in mind. 
And so movies like this just kind of stopped being made, really. And if they did, certainly, like, they weren't being watched by very many people or they aren't anymore. So, like, my question is, like, can a movie that's this sincere and matter-of-fact and gentle in its its message, like, can this even exist anymore? Like, do people have an appetite for this if it wasn't made 35 years ago? Yeah, because, and that's that's the interesting question that uh, I was actually, we can just pose it now, is like, why does it land in the mid to there in the 2000s, but not in 87 in its own time? I mean, part of it, I think, is because in this almost felt like a parody movie of the 80s within the 80s, which like, um, even the most adept and uh, culturally sensitive people to the times, it's impossible to make a parody about your own time. Like you can't, you can't know it until you're away from it. Um, but this movie yeah. somehow does that. I don't like, I don't know how they yeah. did that. Um, this is like a, well, cause what you were even saying is like, there's a conspiracy theory that this was made in 2012. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> no, it's not, it's not a conspiracy theory in that it's something that's been picked up and, and actually taken seriously by a large group of people. I've read someone who very, like, just, he he was could not be convinced that this movie was actually made in 1987. He thought that it was, you know, shot in, like, 2010, 2011, released for the first time in 2012, and that, um, you know, like, any sort of, like, you know, reference to it prior to that could have easily been faked in the digital age. And that the movie was too knowing and like too much mm. a parody of, you know, its actual point in time for it to really be from 1987. And that there was like, you know, the, the creators constructed the sob story of trying and failing back then and it being found by Alma Drafthouse and, and re-released. And they thought that was the whole like marketing gimmick. And I was like, wow, that's so fucking stupid. But <laughs> I get it. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's understandable. And and yeah, to your point, when you're saying like, I would say the late 80s kind of shows the end of like the first wave of blockbuster movies, which the first one kicked off with, um, you know, like Jaws and Star Wars. Um, and th th then you kind of see in the 90s is kind of breaking open sort of a rehash of the 70s where you have a little more wiggle room for indie films. Yeah, you know, the the mid-budget movies are getting a little more space than the giant franchises. So, like, here in the, the late 80s, you're kind of seeing the downhill slope of that. And it, it's interesting to say, can you even make one today? Because that's actually an interesting comparison because, like, my God, are we living in the midst of a huge studio system era for film um, where, you know, franchises are Scream 6 just came out. Uh, Marvel 32 or something like that is now out. And there seems to be two those responses in the, in the 90s to that glut of uh, that rejection of cynicism is kind of was more cynicism. It was yeah. to, uh, to be ironic about it, to detach from it, to, to point out all of the flaws and the silliness of it, get out ahead of it and be knowing of it. Like you said, to be a very culturally literate audience and to, to show that to the other audiences. So you're all in on the same joke. Um, and I think now... Like that just can't fly in the age of the internet because it's just assumed we're all literate. It's just, we're, we're all overly yeah. literate. We're, we know too much about everything we, everywhere all at once, one could say. <laughs> uh, and, and so the, I think the response that we're starting to see, um, I mean, Mumblecore is a good example of this, is this kind of 
rejection of cynicism and this embrace of the small of the of the the seemingly banal or insignificant um but then you know, and i think everything everywhere is a good example of uh doing that on a blockbuster-esque scale and you know i'm 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 looking forward to seeing what will result from that movie making such a big splash to that movie uh, winning Best Picture. I actually did just see it just uh, outperformed Morbius in uh, the box office. So that's, that's oh, very man. important, most importantly. That um, is amazing to me that that just happened. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, I mean it's, it's resurgent after winning the Oscar. It may, basically made it uh, over a year after its initial release. It now is making enough money to you know, usurp other movies' positions. Yeah, to usurp arguably one of the shittiest uh, DC or Marvel outputs that has happened in recent memory. Um, it's just finally passed that, which, you know, that that's encouraging. And also it shows how, how depressing the state of uh, film right now is as a business. Um, but yeah, Miami Connection, it has... Even though it's so awash in 80s aesthetic, it kind of has our modern sensibility about what to do with all that film cynicism. And I think that's part of why it caught fire uh, in more or like 25, 30 years later. Um, because it, yeah, it's strangely, not only is it weirdly prescient in that it parodies 80s in the middle of the 80s unknowingly, but it has the sensibility of someone from the internet age, I feel like, or someone who has grown up on the internet and is so tired of all the irony of all the cynicism of nothing meaning anything ever and just wanting to like just say what you mean for a change for once yeah yeah totally like what what i the way i refer to it is like by 2012 the cynics had sort of had their fill of meme culture and like the the uh, something as cynical as like oh, this movie is so pure, it must be just actual like clout chasing and not really from 30 years ago. Like people were tired of like that sort of bullshit and they just were interested in like just some pure joie de vivre, you know, <laughs> for once, like amidst all of the muck and drudgery, you know. I think that's probably why everything everywhere all at once is so successful as well. Like I think there, there's actually a lot of, common commonality this is in terms of the embracing of your own weird self in both of the movies yeah and and i would say that that's what's even extra charming about miami connection is i think the daniels were they're aware that they're quirky guys um and and they're infusing it knowingly i don't think why kim k kim is self-aware in that sense which then just comes off as so genuine yeah Oh, 100%. or if he is self-aware to the same levels as Daniels, like he just doesn't have the cinematic toolkit or sensibilities to be able to uh, harness that in a very deliberate knowing way. So what you get is just kind of just pure outgrowth of this, you know, odd little man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Odd, friendly, fatherly little man. All right. Moving on. Um, uh, I, I really want to, to, to dig into something because, um, oh, yum, chronic ale. Just mm, again with the amber. pizza port. I think a lot of people would point at this movie and, and refer to it, that really tired, worn out expression. It's so bad, it's good. Which to me, 
isn't really a thing. Um, like that's just the way the way when when someone wants to just wallow in Schadenfreude watching a movie and make fun of it and just hold it, it like you know just hold it in utter contempt um, and just like have fun with like you know your contemptuousness. To me, that's not what this movie is at all. This is like a movie that's poorly made that is a really good movie. So like I cannot think of a time where a piece of art really kind of challenged my perception of like any any way that I can uh, juggle for myself quality versus my enjoyment. I typically look at the overlap. Like to me, like I enjoy things that are like of high quality. And this movie kind of challenges that because again, like this movie is is like inept by any sort of objective measure of like quality filmmaking but it's still so good so like what even constitutes a good movie like does like the level of polish or lack of it actually kind of detract to its like overall like importance or validity or those notions just completely outdated well it's and it's what you wrote in the notes here it's i mean it's the I would say that's the the ground floor on what delineates good and bad art. And it's, uh, does it, like, the idea or feeling or value that it's trying to express, does it communicate that to its audience? Um, is there a this connection? movie so clearly communicates the vision of, of YK Kim and the philosophy of him. And, and yeah, and it can't, like, if there was a single ounce of cynicism in this this whole thing falls apart because the vision is just pure like uh for instance the movie ends uh the the final big bad scene where you've been seeing some like cool taekwondo fights and stuff like that you you can see a little bit of gore but it's nothing like super wild but then the final fight heads are getting cut off uh guts are getting split like blood is going everywhere like they are just ramping up the violence it is brutal yeah. and then yeah. uh, it cuts and there is a quote at the end of this and it says yeah. only through the elimination of violence can we achieve world peace and they mean every word of that dead yeah. seriously so so that dissonance what do you make of it um i'll tell you what i make of it i think that I think that actually this is a moment where where Kim was operating um, kind of at that level of observing himself instead of just expressing himself. Like, mm. I think that he was actually challenging that sort of dichotomy in him where he he loves a, a, a martial art that, you know, like it is used to, to defend yourself. Like it's like it's practical use is, is violence. But like he he uh, I think he was like really kind of challenging like hey it is fun and it is there is like a serenity to doing it properly and not using it for for bad but at the same time i do feel like he's kind of confronting himself with like yeah i mean we just we just showed you all this violence and that's not what i'm about like it's not what i i stand for but like i i do think he was like he like threw that in like kind of towards the end like realizing that the movie in a way like was not was not kind of fully uh, kind of presenting to the world what he really wanted to, right? Well, it's the idea of um, it's the idea of violence versus self-defense or violence in 
being employed towards what? I mean, there's always a famous uh, phrase. Uh, was it Huey Newton? It's one of the Black Panthers. I think. Of, oh, well, I think it was Malcolm X actually, where it's like he never saw the Black Panthers as a violent organization. He saw them as a self-defense organization. Which I mean, that that could be ripped straight out from uh, Taekwondo being a way of life. Do you think like he, he was judging the viewer for enjoying all the violence in the movie, or judging himself huh. for for creating it? Well, he would at least as, like just from the stuff that you've shown me and that I've seen about him and his approach to Taekwondo and just things I know about Taekwondo is, yeah, it's supposed to be defensive. And yeah, so I, I could see, you know, if you're like a young acolyte under his tutelage, ooh, that's a fun word, tutelage. Tutelage. Uh, he, I could see him like kind of admonishing the, the haughty young buck who just wants to go out and start punching and smashing. And he's the, the wise grandmaster. It's like, no, we don't do that. That's not, that's not what this is for, uh, young grasshopper. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I guess there isn't a dissonance like that. That's present throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. And like this really is that is just an exclamation point of kind of what he's already shown. I think I take it back. Like I, I saw that and I kind of rolled my eyes like how did. How no, do and that's how I felt that? too when yeah. I first saw that. I'm like, really? <laughs> but now in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious that there it's not dissonant. Well, and it's like we can even uh I'm just going to be uh, pedantic here. I'm going to expand what the word violence means. I mean, obviously, we we understand violence as just like, you know, whooping the shit out of someone or hurting someone or, you know, even if you want to expand a little bit, just like being cruel towards someone, excluding someone, uh, things of that nature. And I mean, if we look at the position that the uh, the orphans or the, rock, the orphan rock band uh, fills compared to their antagonists, like the orphan rock bands are always acting in defense of themselves and those they care about. They have no goals to gain anything. They just want to eliminate threats. Um, whereas the threats that are at these outside threats that are coming at them are they're trying to gain more power. They're trying to gain more wealth. They're trying to gain uh, just like gain more for themselves at the expense of other people. Um, so I would, in my opinion, consider that a violent act. Um, yeah. So to defend yourself against this encroachment of, you know, the the drug dealers or the the other band or even uh, the brother who is trying to keep him apart from, uh, you know, this Romeo and Juliet style story or maybe some other films or stories that this might be similar from. I don't know. There might be another one, Jared, if you have any ideas. Um, it's the the act of, uh, yeah, violent uh, or physical confrontation in the service of what ends i think is what categorizes things as violence and then acts that may not seem outwardly violent like ostracizing this uh th these orphans who aren't really hurting anyone it, i would say is an act of violence yeah i agree and like i think that's really clearly demonstrated in that moment kind of towards the end like you said there's this kind of tonal shift where the the brutality is kind of dialed up in the end um, where, you know, probably like the, the beating heart of the movie is Jim. Um, and like, he has, the, he has like, the, Jim! he has the, like the, he has the emotional highs of the movie. Like he's the most like emotionally resonant character. And like, we care about him like so much. Right. And like his, his plot line is just so, out of place that you have to like really focus in on it so when he gets like you know he gets stabbed like he they, he really feels it right like they really let him like react to it really big 
And yeah, he's like, he's the character who is no longer an orphan. And like, they're, they're like, he's the, he's the one that they're going to like, you know, basically disembowel. Um, and actually, uh, more trivia, he dies in the original ending. Oh, uh, the original ending was way more somber. He dies in, you know, in Mark's arms. He doesn't get to meet his father. Then boom, only through the elimination of violence can we achieve world peace. Uh, some people thought that was too much of a bummer. And they, the last thing that they shot was a, you know, a 45 second stinger in the hospital after where there's a guy in the worst old age makeup that you or I have ever seen in a major motion picture or, a, or at <laughs> least a just feature like a- length film. Uh, it was just a college guy with like some gray spray paint in his hair. He looks younger <laughs> than the than the, his son. Yeah. Um, for a second, I thought it might have been the same actor. I thought so too for a second. It's not. Um, but they but well cast because they they look like they could be brothers, twin brothers, not <laughs> father and son. But yeah, that was that was shot like a year after the rest of the movie, and uh, because uh, I guess it didn't test very well which begs the question did the rest of the movie test very well well that makes me believe uh who is this tested for i almost believe this is it was shown to you know yk kim and the community that he exists in which is why i think like this is so clearly an outgrowth of the community that created this i'm sure it was like all of them together watching it as like this thing that they all participated in and then they kind of like collectively came to a consensus of like, man, this is a drag. Like we need, we need to end this triumphantly. So it's, it's almost like a, it's like what a focus group should be, which it's like the community that was a part of producing this art is the one who got to get together, make their opinions about it. Essentially in, I mean, I'm completely guessing this is how it is, but like I could totally see this with the ethos of ethos of this film. It's like, the community gets together and they decide collectively on what, how this movie should end. I, I mean, I hope that's what happened. Um, and it wasn't a compromise to, you know, anyone's vision. I don't think there's an ounce of compromise it. and vision in this. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I'm going to go with the uncynical assumption <laughs> here. Um, because that's what the movie wants me to fucking do. <laughs> yeah, everything um, else is pointing in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like the end. I like that the ending isn't a downer like so, that. And this this kind of leads me to what I think was on reviewings, especially after seeing like after giving it a while and then watch it again. This was kind of an interesting aspect I wasn't thinking about the first time. Um, is uh, so YK Kim, he's born in South Korea in the 40s, I believe. And then he immigrates to the US in the 70s. So he lived through the Korean War. So he saw um, I presume he's South Korean, even North Korean. Um, regardless, he was probably pumped with American propaganda, with American cultural artifacts. He probably w- saw a lot of Americans around growing up. And so the idea of the American dream, was, especially in the mid-century, um, we were exporting the American dream in droves, especially in South Korea, where you know that was the front line of the Cold War. The, the 49th parallel between South Korea and North Korea was like, literally the trenches of the U of capitalism versus communism. So 
um, South Korea in particular. And that's why today it's such like a hyper capitalist state is because it was in the U.S. as best the U.S. and the West more broadly, the U.S. just representing it um, to sell this idea of the American dream of rugged individualism, of, of succeeding uh, no matter what the odds and and for all of its goods and bads behind those values. Um, I, I genuinely believe based on this film, YK Kim grew up seeing that and was part of, I think he even said that he came out here to find his American dream. And he built him, he's, he's literally like one of those uh, uh, rags of riches stories where he really did do that. He didn't come here with anything and he built it all up on his own. But it's fascinating to, this is like a direct line into a, an immigrant's viewpoint of the American dream from an outsider's perspective, working within the U.S. to say what, what he thinks that the United States looks like, and especially Florida, which is a very interesting place for him to land and comment on on what the American dream looks like. Because, I mean, uh, if, if Florida was considered kind of this central, central point for well, it, it's it even was he did he, he did move to New York City. Yeah, he started first. in New York um, and came down to Florida, which like within within less than a year though he yeah. he moved to he moved from Argentina to right. New York yeah, City. Yeah, he first moved to Argentina. The guy's got a wacky and then, life. And then he only spent a year in New York City bef before he decided that's not where the opportunity is. You know where the opportunity is, Orlando. He's, I mean, he's probably not wrong, but to look at his vision of the United States and the American dream, and specifically in the context of Florida in the 80s, and seeing what Florida looks like now in reality, or even not even the reality of Florida, but the public perception of Florida, like the Florida man uh, doesn't come out of nowhere, um, or the media's depiction of Florida. It's like this weird, hyper-individualist, like borderline libertarian hellhole now. And... So the signs were kind of there in the 80s too like you have all the cocaine movies you have your scarface you have miami vice you have all that stuff and yeah specifically miami like it's i don't think it's a coincidence that he's putting all this stuff in miami uh is like the dangerous city and orlando is like this the city uh that's purer and kinder and gooder and uh and is fighting against these foreign forces in miami that are corrupted but it, it's fascinating to see someone's almost fantasy of America and Florida on screen and what both of those things have turned into in the last now 35 years. Yeah. And I, I can, like, I, I don't know enough about Florida's recent history to know what, how much the Florida of today is different from the Florida the, of the year it's, of my birth. Long but... story short, it's much like a lot of the things that we're dealing with today. It's forces that were set in motion in the 70s and the 80s. The chickens have been coming home to roost for a while. It's just Florida raised more chickens. I so see. there are more coming back to them right now. Uh, you asked and then answered your own question, like why are, why are the good guys you know, from Orlando and the bad guys from Miami? And I think I... Uh... Uh, I think I think the the real answer is just that like it's what was in pop culture at the time, like Miami Vice. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I know it's that it can be that simple on its head, but I think it's interesting why choose Miami as the city of danger, and why do we see Orlando as the city of um, you know good, honest community. Where really, I, I mean, if you look at the history Florida. of Orlando, it's a weird city. It did not exist until Walt Disney just poofed it into being. Right. 
um, it's it's for all intents and purposes, it's kind of an unnatural city. It never should have existed. Whereas uh, Miami makes sense. It's a major port. It's a major connection between uh, Latin America, the Caribbean, and even uh, over on Africa too. It's got a very long history of being a major uh, a hub for communities. It's also especially relevant that like, you know, that's that's the entry point from Cuba. Most of the Cuban uh, immigrants are coming or defectors live there. Um, and so this uh, this tension uh, is very protracted in Miami of this. It's kind of like, you know, how, you know, down here in San Diego, like there's there's a uh, there's migrant crises down here, but it's only because of our position down here and that we're kind of the protracted central point. It's not like. Um, it's anything San Diego is doing, just like it's not nothing Miami's doing. It's a national problem that has its hotbeds in certain parts of the country where Orlando, and that's what I think is kind of interesting because there's a lot of things that I don't know if YK Kim isn't thinking about it or it's just not something he's privy to, but it's like Orlando can't, the Orlandos of the world can't exist without the chaos and the rapaciousness of the Miamis. I think it's interesting that Miami is sort of that you know that that port for Cubans, but uh, our uh, our dear communists are in Orlando. Ah, the commun or the orphan commune of Orlando. Yeah, I that was almost what I wrote the essay about. I just didn't have enough legs to really bring it out. Um, the or the orphans. The orphans are communists, and they are fighting the hyper capitalist forces of the biker cocaine ninjas. Oh, 100%. I mean, you can just tie, <laughs> tie it right on back to the Korean War. Yeah, no, I mean, you like ask, are they communists? Yeah, yeah, they are. They, they, they're, they're a commune. Like, to quote, like, a very popular television show that you haven't seen yet. Oh, Last of Us. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, this is a commune. We're, we're literally communists. We're like, you know, uh, at no point, because uh, it's just not the focus of the movie. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting where that you don't see any of the day-to-day for how on earth does this home exist? Like, where's the money coming from? Uh, which, you know, once again, not really, not every movie has to explain the economics of individual households. Well, um, they're, uh, they're, so they're a working band. They have a regular gig. They live in a very small, like seeming, seeming like a very small house. And there's what, there's six of them that live there? That is, okay. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't have to be spoken. I guess there's a bit of a fantasy that like, you know, a a uh, moonlighting band can support of like six people and a house, but like fine. Maybe I mean, the cast of Friends lived in Manhattan and they didn't do anything. So maybe Mark makes money teaching Taekwondo. Uh, it's possible. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film where uh, the good guys are not focused on money or the accumulation of capital or getting a bigger no. house or getting more no. territory or a bigger hey. market or like their main ambition isn't to like play the biggest stadium in Orlando. They just want, so that they can make a shit ton of money, they just want to share the gospel of Taekwondo no. with as many it, people as possible. And right now this yeah. is the way that they figured out they can do it. Yeah, it was a matter of fact that they would pool their money to buy Jim a new suit in which to meet his father, his long lost right. father. Well, yeah, they're, they're like a family in the true, well, a commune or a family in the truest sense of the word, where the forces that are fighting them are people who see uh, see all the resources around as very finite, and they need to get as much of it as they can and take it from other people. Uh, and there's no sense of like sharing in that wealth 
or or building up community it's it's all destructive and tearing down for their own gain yeah and uh, and they they definitely go head to head like i do think there is a kind of battle of economic philosophies going on (laughs) (laughs) which is ironic given that probably not intentional no not intentional just just a a product of everyone's experience in the world around them yeah because i mean yk kim even just listening to interviews and stuff there there's no way that man is a socialist or a communist like he's he's an american through and through in his like uh, core beliefs um when it comes to you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and and maximizing your potential and and really but then at the same time he does kind of have this like very communitarian ethos to him where it's and you know maybe some of it's a shtick i don't know but at least from what i can gather like he his success comes off the back of him genuinely trying to uplift those around him yeah it seems that way and like to the point where like he basically bankrupted himself to make sure that like this movie could be made to the standard that he wanted where it would have kind of expressed those ideals Mm, like he, yeah. like I don't think like that was like a investment mechanism for him as far as like you know input money output more money it doesn't seem that way at all. Yeah, like the making of the movie itself like seems to kind of lend itself to that that theory. Yeah, when you get into the actual physical production of it, like yeah, there's just no way, um, and and it comes out in the end product too. That that attitude is rife through everything. Where you know it's um, oh, what's his name, Theodore Adorno. Um, he's another, or he's a person very very interested in how the ways that we make art as a product affects what the products look like or what ethos that they have or what values that they purport. Um, he says that the two are much more inextricable than we would like to think. And and this is definitely an example of as an outsider art form, it has an ethos that's just completely anathema to studio filmmaking at the time and even studio filmmaking, period. Oh, yeah, um, I think even more so now. Well, and, and a good example, a uh, good comparison would be a very successful film that does uh, very, has very similar beats uh, called a little bit of West Side Story, which actually got a remake the other year or last year as well. So, uh, Jared, uh, would you like to uh, enlighten us on yeah. comparing uh, contrasting these two? Yeah, I mean, the comparisons are clear. Like, there's, it would be mind-boggling to find out that there wasn't direct influence of from West Side Story on this because it's about the same things like it's about communities that are you know diametrically opposed street fighting each other they're both musicals they're well they're both like loose adaptations of Romeo and Juliet Miami Connection even looser but there's certainly a Romeo and Juliet story that drives the plot of the both movies. Yeah, I mean, the rival gangs, like, they they sort of interact in the same way. They're both about places as much as they are about people. Like, West Side... It's literally called West Side Story. It's not called the Jets versus the Sharks. It's called West Side Story. Mm. This is called Miami Connection. Uh, yeah, like, they're both musicals. Like, they both kind of luxuriate in the, in the music, even more so than, like, most musicals. Uh, treating the the music as sort of an abstraction. Yeah, I mean, but like if you kind of strip that away, like West Side Story is, you know, is a investment mechanism. Like it's uh, it, it sort of has like like I 
have cynicism around it where it's like, yeah, like Romeo and Juliet is a story that everyone knows. Let's kind of just update it for the times, make it really nice and polished and sell it. And the um, musical where, mode is very, very profitable at the moment when it came out. Oh, yeah. I mean, musical theater was was probably at its most profitable back in the uh, was it the 60s. And then, uh, you know, Spielberg uh, obviously made an even glossier, kind of more polished version uh, recently that like you can kind of juxtapose even more to Miami connection. But yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're two versions of the same story. Like it's not mm-hmm. even just like they're comparable. It's like they're, they're both seem to be adapted from the exact same DNA. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a, it's a, it's a tale as old as time, star cross lovers, competing factions trying to keep them away and ritual or, and uh, ninja sword decapitation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and th- that's a good, that's another good um, little segue to uh, what we have to, we have to talk about the music more. The yeah. music in Miami connection takes the movie from great to legendary. <laughs> Oh yeah, this movie would not be I would, what it is without the music. Uh, yeah, I would say like I, I've used the word you know ineptitude so many times to describe this movie. The one aspect where it's like no, I think I think like if, if there's one like aspect of the movie that is just truly exceptional by like the traditional measures of quality while still maintaining that sincerity, that matter of factness, that wholesomeness, that heart, it's the music. Like these songs are fucking great. Um, <laughs> catchy as all hell cool guitar work like competently recorded like the guy that that plays the band leader with the great mustache and the great mullet in the movie the most angela powerful G- mullet in florida oh my powerful god mullet powerful mustache angela Ginotti. uh yeah he not only wrote the songs and performed them he was the studio engineer for them because you know like they're not they newsflash they didn't hire a whole team of engineers and, and music producers to make this music no alex or angela Ginotti is just a fucking boss and he the way he performs like on stage in the movie and like lip syncs to his own vocals <laughs> and oh and it's so clear really... that no one is playing those instruments no like and that's funny like i i'm wondering how intentional that is because like the guy that that actually played every note of the actual music is there on stage poorly miming it it's just funny that like miami connection is like so bad in like you know the traditional sense that like even the guy who is like intimate and create like intimately created all the music still is like poorly miming it like just because yeah, whatever that's... the conditions on set probably just didn't lend themselves to accuracy. <laughs> he also would probably have looked funny if he was miming it accurately compared to everyone else. Yeah, and he really hams it up. Like all like he he's like kind of like dry humping the guitar the whole time, like a proper like hair metal shredder. <laughs> um what do you think the best song is? I think I think we should do three, two, one, 
then name the song at the same time. Oh, so we're not. Man. See, pull I, up I'm... the track list. You'll you'll know which one's which just by the titles. The yeah, lyrics but... are the titles. God, that's hard. There's like okay, we'll just do it. Okay, right. three, two, one. Friends, tough guys. Oh, you're messing <laughs> with the tough guy. Just, yeah, it's just so, so like. In a movie that is so horribly on the nose, it's on the nosiest the most. You got a bunch of badass bikers riding down the streets of Florida with their loud-ass hogs. And just this, you know, Guns N' Roses sounded dudes going, messing with the tough guys. Just, oh my God, love it. Uh, (laughs) Oh my God. Trouble in the night. Looking for a fight. Don't be a fool. Trying to be so cool. And the, yeah, the uh, rhymes are so elementary. It's so good. Yeah, it, it's almost like "Beat It." It's like it's like the bad version of "Beat It" by Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, my favorite song is "Friends." Oh also, my god! Also, just a, a class, unimpeachable. I, I, I've been singing it to my daughter. I've been singing it to my dog like literally my dog will come up wagging his tail and i'd be like friends for eternity loyalty <laughs> honesty it's so good we'll stick together through thick or thin which i also like, think that song is like it's the, th- the theme song of the movie well right i mean so like the lyrics in these songs like tackle the topics of loyalty and friendship and family and also fighting coked out biker ninjas with equal guys. fervor. With equal fervor. Like there's multiple songs just describing how the ninjas will steal your cocaine along with your life. Um, <laughs> ah, cocaine uh, ninjas. Okay. Oh my God. Against the Ninja is, is uh. my second favorite, though. It's got the great, <laughs> like, it's got the great sing along, like, gang vocals of like, Tai Quan, Tai Quan, Tai Quan, Do is a way of life. Yeah, against the ninja. <laughs> oh my god! It's like it's probably it's the thing. It does, for me, it's the thing that okay. separates the movie from uh, some of its, you know, the the closer comparisons. Like we've talked about the room a couple of times. Um, the fact that this is a musical, it just just absolutely just scratches a specific itch that I have. <laughs> Because uh, and it also like these these songs kind of fit with what we're saying. It, it tonally fits perfectly with everything. Where it's like, this album should be an '80s parody album, but it came yeah. out in the '80s. Yeah, it's it's got like it's got that weird Al thing. And actually, this movie kind of reminds me. Have you seen the movie UHF? Weird Al's movie from the '80s. No. There. So Weird Al plays a guy who just by happenstance inherits a struggling like public access television station. And he knows nothing about running a public access television station. So, but he, so now he's responsible for programming and everything. (laughs) So like, so it has like a, it ends up, it's weird out. So like it ends up having a bunch of parodies, like, like they have a show Conan, the librarian, Mm, they're like Gandhi too. no more Mr. Passive resistance. This time he's out to kick some ass. Um, (laughs) Like, that that sort of thing, and in fact, it has a martial like a martial arts show by a, a kind of a YK Kim like guy. But this movie reminds me of a a parody movie from UHF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Um, oh, you need to. I need to send you this if you like this album. Sort of people doing this now in 2023. It's a band called The Midnight. Have you heard of them? No. 
where they genuinely, I thought that they were a parody band. Like I thought, like it's very synth wave. It's very glam. It's very hair metal. It's achingly like sincere sounding. Um, I would love to hear that. And and I thought, I really thought it was just like a cheeky novelty shtick band, right? And then I saw them live and I loved them 10 times more because no, they mean everything. Like there is no irony going on. They are they are standing by this like everything that all of their music stands for. There is just not a single wink or nod. And it's great for that. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, even if you got uh, if you got your your Spotify open, just look at the album covers. Uh, do do you think there's actually like a performance in this movie that is uh, kind of transcends the other ones? I don't think there are. I think like everyone is like is bad in such a way that like it almost feels like it has to be intentional. Like there was there was a unifying vision for the style of performance in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the director, he definitely nailed that. He got everyone on the same page. Yeah, I, I would, man, I'd love to be a fly on the wall to like how how the directors were directing the actors because they all seem bad in the same way. Yeah. Except uh, I got to point out that uh, Maurice Smith, who plays Jim, is the standout bad actor. St- standout bad, yeah. Well, because they're, they're yeah. trying to make him do the most emotional thing, so it exposes well, him. Yeah, but, but... I've seen the movie a few times very recently, and I think that he is crying actual tears in that scene. I think he actually got there emotionally. Good for him. But he, like, I, he, the whole, his whole performance is all in his head voice. It's not like, <laughs> guys, I have a dad. It's like, guys, I have a dad. Have a dad. <laughs> like, oh, I have my father. I found my father. <laughs> and it is interesting. Um, I don't know if I have enough to a leg to stand, not a leg to stand up, but I, I don't think this one has enough legs that like he's he is half Korean, according to this film. He's, and his dad definitely uh, canoodled with a Korean lady out in South Korea, probably during the Korean or literally during the Korean War. Does he say that? Uh was he a little young? If not, no, well, then it was probably not. the, the occupation not. afterward. Like, they, maybe his yeah. dad was like on in a base in Korea and found a nice uh, Korean lady. Although, you know, let's be real, the nature of uh, U.S. occupation in Korea probably wasn't a willing nice Korean lady. Uh, might have been more of a working lady who was Korean. Uh, okay, I need to just like kind of just reference a few more things in this movie to get it out of my system because <laughs> they don't they the, don't make the... buns like that at the bakery. <laughs> They were definitely filming bikini-clad women without their permission, just by the by. Oh, see, what I like um, better is Mullet Man. I forget his name. Um, I think he has a humiliation fetish. Um, and so he insisted on the scene that he fell on top of all these bikini-clad ladies, and they just slapped the shit out of him for a like really a yeah, long time. a really time. long time. A long time, yeah. And uh, there's a few t- moments in the movie where characters are upset or annoyed with other characters are supposed to be mad but they're like the actors are smiling because they're having a good time and they just like <laughs> leave it in there's a great moment where rival gang like or the rival band stops them in the street oh yeah and they're all like they're they like confront them in their car and they're like all right let's do it do it and a guy just comes up and like pours beer on them right and like the members of the band they're are so like, pleased 
they're all they're all kind of smiling. One of them kind of leans into it. No, that's what I was gonna say. The, the tall guy, you see, before the beer even like the the tough, like spills yeah. a little beer first, like has like a warning. And, and he just like to the car and the really tall guy, yeah, like leans his head over. So he can really make grinning. sure. He's like smiling like big. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the girls are like smiling the whole time. They're like beating up Genoti uh, at the beach as well. It's just, it's just so adorable. <laughs> oh, but, and then, uh, this film is, they love making out. In this movie, they make out so oh, much. Oh yeah, and it's and they're they they're not good at it. No, <laughs> it like, like how I thought like hot makeouts would look like when I was fifteen. Yeah, and the movie like breaks the one eighty rule to show the making out from various angles, like when they're like frolicking in the water together, <laughs> or they're, they um, put a beach chair in the tide and started making out on it while the waves are crashing over them. So one of my okay i think my favorite single line in the movie is okay oh. so by the way the screenwriter plays probably he plays the drummer who's probably the least developed character of them all but he gave himself the best line where it's like they're all he's like saying like he's afraid to go back to the club like he, he just wants to quit his job he wants to quit his job as like you know the band the house band and mark is telling him like we can't just quit our job. Like it's how we make money. Like you can't be afraid. And then they're talking, he's talking about Jeff. Who's like one of the, he's like the kind of lower level bad guy. And he's like, but Jeff's always in there every night with his damn gang selling that stupid cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, of course you gave yourself the very best line in the movie. It's got, it's got the, the vitriol against drugs that like your local dare officer would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sure. that dumb c- crack cocaine. That's stupid cocaine. Those uh, those misguided kids in there. Uh, they're uh, they're 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 doing their cocaine and and drinking their weeds. I don't even know what they're up to anymore. This doesn't look like the welcome wagon. They all kind of they all kind of have the the delivery of Hayden Christensen in Star Wars Episode Two. <laughs> I do I do genuinely like it was kind of a just straight up cool scenes at the end of the bloodbath and you have YK Kim with the sword and it like slows. I was like, come on! And like even me at that moment, I was like, yeah, come mm. on! Uh, let's see. Or the or when oh, Jim's wanna... dying, the the screams of agony for Jim. It's just YK Kim going, Jim. Jam. I want to talk recommendations, mm. uh, but I don't know. I also want to bring up one thing that's just kind of tangentially related, but uh, that I, I, it, it struck me really hard. Okay, so this my I'm gonna have very. I can't recommend other movies based on this movie. There, it, there, this there was are one of the no harder other. ones I've had for genuinely recommending movies in in like yeah. a useful way. I, I'm so I'm gonna go really, really, really left field and not even recommend movies. So. Uh, my first recommendation is any episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where where the gang tries to make some art. So that Ooh. could be that could be the Dayman musical episode because the the Day, the Dayman song is very very similar to some of the music in this. But any any time where they're trying to make a movie or you know make that musical make music, it's got the same energy as Miami Connection. I feel like the, the It's Always Sunny guys probably love this movie oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah yeah like it's like charlie just being completely sincere 
in his points of view, but he's completely inept. But he wants to make an action movie. He wants to make a musical. It's got the same exact energy. So I, I, you'll have to look it up on your own. But just any any of the episodes where they're making a movie or um, making music. We'll put specific episodes in the imaginary show notes. There you go. Um, no, Let's... and I, I think uh, just as a general rule, we don't necessarily have to recommend other movies um, because I was thinking about that in my write-up is I would have just recommended just listen to The Midnight and specifically their album Days of Thunder. Hmm, yeah, Endless Summer. If you listen to Endless Summer, very similar vibe. Um, All right. But for movie, I actually have never seen Always Sunny. I've seen like a few episodes. Um, and strangely, it's because I have like a... I, I have a very low appetite for comedy that focuses around how awful the characters are. And so that is uh, like even Seinfeld, like eventually I like kind of get tired of mm, it. So I'm like, I mm-hmm. get it. These people are depraved. I know. Yeah. Seinfeld doesn't have a character though, that like acts as a foil to that by being mostly good hearted. And like, I guess Kramer in a way, but it's always sunny does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that does help it a bit. I, and I'm also just, I don't know. It's just, I'm much less inclined to watch TV against movies anyways. Okay, well, well, you should watch the episode where they're making a musical. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've seen like plenty of references to it. And it does look like the references I've seen look very funny, so. Okay, what what uh, what do you have as far as a, a so, movie recommendation? I know you've got something. Mine also is a bit... The, the threads are loose because, yeah, this is just such a singular film. Like, I, like you could have gone one of two ways. You could have gone um, another movie soaked in 80s nostalgia. And I thought there's kind of an inverse of this movie called Kung Fury. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's kind of the more sneering version of this exact film. Uh, yeah, that an actual 80s parody. Yeah, yeah, because it was made like, uh, what, like seven years uh, ago? It, no. It was made around the exact same time that this movie mm. became popular. And it also has a story of like, it's kind of, you know, the little movie that could, it got kickstarted, all that fun stuff. So it has a good story behind it. But it, yeah, its attitude is definitely much more sneering at this uh, this aesthetic where Miami Connection doesn't sneer at all. Um, but so I decided to go with something that is of its time, that is almost a parody of its own time, but kind of isn't a way it, it only became more apparent as uh time is passing which this movie now came out 11 years ago it's called spring breakers by harmony corinne mm. and it shares a lot of surface level comparisons it's set in florida um there's a lot of neon uh there's a lot of uh you know the the aesthetic is turned up to 11 um there there's a lot of music going on there's you know there are the, it's a it's a drug crime movie as well um, and where I would say the big, uh, this is like the dark mirror to uh, Miami Connection in the way that if Miami Connection is a foreigner's view of the American dream in the positive and belief in it, uh, this is a view of the American dream set in Florida as, uh, or specifically too, yeah, where YK Kim sees Florida and the, uh, the American dream through the lens of Florida and is kind of celebrating what it can be. Uh, this is kind of an American nightmare set in Florida and what it has become. But mm. it also, at no point does it, like, it also takes the emotional lives of the main four girls very seriously. Like, this is not, um, 
this movie it shows like quote unquote Florida men and Florida women, I suppose. Uh, but you're not meant to look down on them or mock them. You're you're right there with them. Have you seen uh, uh, Spring Breakers? So that's uh, that's another movie that's I think from around 2012 ish. Yep. You know, I got to be real frank. I was constantly drunk and stoned during that <laughs> period of my life, and so I saw Spring Breakers under the like. Okay, here's a movie that's gonna have like a weird James Franco performance and like some hot Spring famous girls, break. and uh, I barely remember it. Mm. I have a friend uh, who has like a very sort of discriminating taste in movies, like very highbrow taste in movies, and she loves Spring Breakers. Harmony Korine is, I feel his stuff in general, I feel like is kind of similar to Miami Connection. It's like kind of a rule breaking film when it comes to. What makes a good or bad movie? It kind of confounds taste. Have you seen Gummo or Gumno? I yeah, think? so Gummo. Yeah, I've seen some of some of Corin's other movies, like Kids and Gummo, Julian Donkey Boy. Yeah, so I remember seeing like I, I was I kind of went into Spring Breakers thinking it might be like you know Corin's uh, um, collaborations with, with Larry Clark. So old, mm -hmm. old filmmaking partner. Um, and it's very different from those movies. Um, it's way more like accessible. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't remember much about Spring Breakers. Um, yeah, basically, or the other big point, I think that eventually like really did connect these two. And after I thought of the, the surface level stuff, because I was thinking like Florida movies, and it's like Beach Bum popped up in my head too, but that didn't quite feel right. Like it's so strange how well he because i was in college in 2012 so i was of spring break age um i didn't i never went on spring break because i was playing baseball so we were always playing instead of spring break but like my understanding as a college kid in 2012 seeing spring break videos and like knowing the party culture of the time like this is perfect parody of like 2012 sleaze culture like mm -hmm. a lot of highlighter colors a lot of those shutter glasses you got dubstep playing uh, yeah. lmfao kind of shit going and like now it almost plays like a parody of itself but at the time i don't know if it knew that it was parodying 2012 well that that right there is a, a remarkable comparison to miami connection then if it's like both a product of its time a uh, meditation on its time and a parody of its own time, then that's kind of a, a remarkable. Oh, and they both feature boobs. Friends.